Well, good morning once again. As uh, you are all painfully aware, we have officially entered into the Christmas season. And in honor of Christmas, especially in light of all that it means to us as Christians, I'd like to do something I've never done before in all my years of ministry. I'd like to take this Sunday, the next two Sundays, and then Christmas morning, I'd like to set aside these four services to do a series I've entitled The Story of Christmas. The Story of Christmas. You know, I remember when my oldest son, Phil, this is going back a few years, was about five or six. He came to me a couple weeks before Christmas one year and uh, asked me if I would read to him the Christmas story from the Bible. Well, my initial reaction was to turn to the Gospel of Luke and read the first part of chapter 2, when the Lord kind of spoke to me and said, you realize the story of Christmas doesn't begin in Luke's Gospel. And I thought about that, I thought, you're right, Lord. You're right. I mean, the story of Christmas didn't begin in Bethlehem or in a manger, or even with the announcement of the angel to Mary that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. The Christmas story actually began 4,000 years earlier in a garden, the Garden of Eden. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And let's start with verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. In Genesis chapter 3, it's true the serpent isn't specifically identified as Satan. However, when we look at other scriptures that speak of this event, this garden, this temptation, they clearly point out that the serpent here is none other than Satan himself. We learn from Ezekiel 28 verses 13 to 19, God tells us that Satan was in Eden, the garden of God. In Revelation chapters 12 and 20, we see a dragon introduced and then identified as that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. Now, back in Genesis 3, verse 1, the word cunning is a Hebrew word that means intelligent, shrewd. Of course, this is not like the serpent we think of today, what this creature looked like before the fall, how it got around, um, you know, how beautiful it was. We have no way of knowing. You say, well... Did all the animals talk in the garden? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I just think that uh, Eve was in a state of innocence. Theologians say that this was the the, uh, state of innocence. They were like little children. They didn't know good from evil. They were like little kids. And you know how little kids are. Okay, if a two-year-old has a pet dog or cat, and the thing comes up to them and starts talking to them, they'll probably just start talking back. Okay, I don't think anything of it, right? So I think that that was the case with Eve. I think that people say, well, why was she so nonchalant about this, okay? Why didn't she shriek and run away when the snake started talking to her? I just think she was in a state of innocence. I don't think she knew any better. 
But you say, well, where did Satan come from? And for many of you, this is going to be familiar territory. Bear with me. But where did Satan come from? Well, the Bible says, of course, that God created him and gave him the name Lucifer, which means shining one, shining one. In Ezekiel 28, verse 14, God tells us that at one time, Lucifer was the anointed cherub that covered. A cherub was the highest form of an angel, and Lucifer was the highest cherub over all the angels. When it says he was the anointed cherub that covered, in other words, he was the one who was an authority over all the other angels in heaven, second only to God himself. But Isaiah chapter 14 tells us that Lucifer wasn't content to be second to the Almighty. He wanted to be the most high God. And so he led a rebellion in heaven in an attempt to overthrow God. Revelation 12 tells us that he was able to convince a third of the angels of heaven to follow him in this revolt. They failed, of course, and became fallen angels. And also at that time, Lucifer became Satan, which means adversary, and the devil, which means slanderer and accuser. Now, one thing you need to understand is that even after the fall of Lucifer, he still maintained his beauty and wisdom, all right? He's a very beautiful creature. In fact, he uses that beauty to deceive people. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, Paul tells us that Satan often takes the form of an angel of light to deceive. And that simply means that we have come to associate uh, evil with ugliness and uh, goodness with beauty. That's not necessarily true across the board. And we see it here with Lucifer, who is extremely beautiful, and yet he is the most wicked creature in all of creation. And yet he does use that beauty to deceive. Uh, he has come in the form of different types of beings and even angelic creatures over the centuries, or he has sent his own fallen angels who have taken a very beautiful form to deceive people. I remember how that in studying Mormonism, that Joseph Smith Jr. at one point was visited by the angel Moroni. And uh, Moroni was uh, presented to Joseph Smith as a messenger of God, someone to give him truth. Because the church had been messed up for 1,900 years, nobody had the truth. And so now God had sent the angel Moroni to Joseph Smith to tell him about these golden tablets of Nephi, which contained the truth of God. Of course, they were written in ancient uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics, and the only way that Joseph could understand them was if he put on these special glasses called the Urim and Thummim, and when he did, he could read the hieroglyphics, and that became the basis for Mormonism. Of course, we know that the angel Moroni was a false angel. It might have been Satan. We know he was a, false, he was a deceiver. And all throughout the centuries, uh, Satan has taken the form of various beautiful creatures, uh, whether they be avatars or ascended masters. We're seeing a lot of people involved in the occult who are being visited by aliens. It's interesting that as people have had encounters with so-called aliens from other planets, and they've had these um, uh, close encounters of the third kind, they call them, where they engage the alien in conversation. I've heard that often these aliens will quote scripture. They're not aliens. They're demons masquerading as creatures from another planet. So this is nothing new. But we think that because Satan is ugly and hideous, of course, that's, we're, we're really uh, victims of Milton's description of the devil. Milton described him as a hideous, ugly creature. And so we've come to think of Satan in those terms. 
And therefore, anything that is beautiful, any kind of doctrine that makes you feel good, gives you peace, well, that must be of God, because that's good. We don't realize that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he feeds people false doctrine, which, yes, seem to empower them, give them a sense of, of, of peace, uh, well-being, and yet these are false doctrines because we compare them with the truth of God, we can see that they're nothing but Satan's lies. Now, being such a beautiful creature, one of the things that Isaiah tells us that I think is very interesting is the first time we see Lucifer, after we're raptured to heaven, and you know, someday Lucifer is going to have to stand before the Lord and be judged. And the first time we as the people of God see the devil, we are going to say, is this the guy? Paraphrasing. Is this the man that caused all the trouble? This guy? Why are we going to say that? We're going to be shocked. Because he's so beautiful that we don't understand that somebody that beautiful could be that wicked. So sometime before Genesis chapter 3, Lucifer led a revolt in heaven he fell, of course, he was defeated. And uh, Jesus said in Luke 8, uh, 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, when Lucifer fell, his authority in heaven was terminated. In other words, he was no longer the top angel over all the other angels. He was removed from that position, but he continues to remain in authority as leader over a group of very powerful fallen angelic beings. This is an army that Satan has control over, and they are still bent on overthrowing God and establishing on the earth their kingdom. They're going to be successful for a while, but only because God allows it to the Antichrist. But of course, then the real Christ, Jesus Christ, will come back and establish his kingdom. Now, here's the thing. Satan knew, after he was defeated in heaven, Satan knew he couldn't do anything to hurt God directly. So he decided the next best thing was to hurt those that God loved, those who were made in his image after his likeness for the purpose of loving fellowship. You know, you want to get at somebody very powerful, you can't get at them. If you're a very evil person, you attack the kids. That's what Satan did. You can't hurt God. God's almighty. But he can sure go after the people God loves. That would be all of us. So Genesis 3, guys, is all about Satan exporting his rebellion from heaven to the earth where he set his sights on corrupting mankind and tearing us from the loving arms of God, breaking our fellowship with him. But guys, listen, that wasn't his only plan. He wanted to take from Adam and Eve through deceit, through deception, the world that God had given to them. God gave them this earth. Uh, he said, it's yours, tend it, watch over it, and so on. And so Satan wanted to take from them this world, where he could be then the world's new owner, and man's new master. And he did that in the garden. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you, in the you is plural, you and Adam, uh, shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, in John's gospel chapter 8, Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies, who was a liar from the beginning. No doubt that's a reference right here to Genesis 3, where Satan, the father of lies, offered up the first lie to the human race that he ever fed the human race, which, of course, at this time only consisted of two people, Adam and Eve. But the very first lie of the devil was to tell Eve that God didn't tell her the truth. Now, look, he doesn't come right out and say God's a liar. He's much too subtle for that. 
But what he does is he tries to sow doubt in Eve's mind as to what God has really said. He said, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Some of the newer translations put it this way, did God really say? Did God really say? We can hear the devil today. Did God really say if two men or two women love each other, they can't be together? You know, you hear it today in all kinds of different ways, right? But here, guys, we have the first question in the Bible. And it posed the very first dilemma in human history. There were no dilemmas before this. The question is carefully crafted by Satan to start Eve down a path of doubting God's word. That's where it always begins in our lives as Christians. If Satan is going to tempt you to do evil, you know the word. So he'll try to undermine the authority. He'll try to get you to doubt if God really forbid this thing that you want to do. Because he knows that doubting the word of God will eventually lead to rejecting the will of God. And when he gets a person to reject God's word and God's will, he can get them then to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. One author put it this way, suddenly, quote, And for the very first time, the most deadly spiritual force was covertly smuggled into the world. What was it? The assumption that what God has said is subject to human judgment, end quote. Now, the attack, and it was an attack, this is the beginning of spiritual warfare, centered on the one prohibition God had placed on Adam and Eve, the one tree he told them they couldn't eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His point seems to be, and I don't have time to develop all of this, you can go online and listen to Genesis 3, because we just finished that uh, a few months ago. His point, though, seems to be to try to convince Eve that God was being unnecessarily restrictive and narrow. I can just hear him, and maybe... They had a longer conversation than what's recorded in God's Word. This is the main thing of it. It could be that they had a conversation that was even more lengthy. And I could just hear the devil saying to her, Look, God wants to limit your freedom and rob you of the fulfillment that you deserve. That's why he doesn't want you eating from that tree. He knows it's good. It's beneficial. And listen, not only did that undermine the truth of God, it was a frontal, a direct frontal assault on the character of God. Listen, how can God be a good and all-loving God if he's keeping from us things that are beneficial, right? And if he does keep from us things that are beneficial, things that were, will be good for us, well, how can we trust him to lead our lives in the right paths? Do you see it here? Satan even comes alongside Eve in a sense, puts his arm around her, because at this time he probably had arms before he was cursed, uh, and basically tries to convince her he has her best interests in heart at heart when God doesn't. Because God, he's implying to her, uh, wants to keep things from you that are good, whereas me, I'm trying to give you the best life possible. I want you to experience everything in life that will bring you happiness and fulfillment. God, he's a killjoy. He, he just, he's, he, there's no reason he wants to keep you from these things except to, you know, for you to be happy. He doesn't want you happy. Some people think God doesn't really want me happy. Every time I start getting on my feet, start going forward, he knocks me down again. That's some people's concept of God. They have such a, they don't understand the nature of God. Now, Satan has subtly challenged Eve. At this point, Eve, Eve isn't ready to take the bait completely. So she tries in kind of a weak way to defend God. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God tell her she couldn't touch the fruit? 
She added that, didn't she? She added that. Why did she add that? I don't know. Maybe she thought she was helping God out, you know? Well, I've got to help God. No, no, we can't eat it. We can't even touch it. God never said it. You can't touch it. In fact, God said in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, don't take anything from my word and woe to that person that adds anything to my word. God's pretty particular about his word. He doesn't feel that it's our place to revise it, to edit it, to update it in any way. It's his word. It's perfect. It's pure. It's unchanging, right? Because it reflects the nature and the mind of God. There are many who have taken from the word of God over the years, many people. They have taken out Thomas Jefferson. He rewrote the Gospels, okay? In fact, I think it was the whole New Testament. No, for sure it was the Gospels. It's called the Jefferson Bible. When he did, he took out all the miracles. Why? Because he didn't believe in miracles. So he reduced the Gospels down to just a set of moral codes. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches the truth about Jesus, who he was, what he did. He's God. He died and rose the third day bodily. That's all true. What they do is they add to the gospel things. Yes, faith in Jesus, that's going to be necessary to get you into heaven. But then you've got to add the sacraments. You've got to light the candles and pray the rosaries and do the, go to Mass because you need that on top of your faith to go to heaven. Read Galatians chapter 3. Paul the Apostle devotes, in fact, the whole book of Galatians to those who try to add works to their faith to get into heaven. He says, don't do it. You will not get into heaven if you try to help God out. He won't allow you to stand next to him on, on that day and take credit for you getting into heaven. God wants all the glory, which means he has taken it completely out of our hands. It's a total gift that we receive by faith. Not that we work for salvation, I mean. So, Eve tried to kind of add something to God's word to kind of bolster it, make it even stronger. But at this point, Satan knows he's got her. She's wavering. He knows that God didn't say that. So at this point, he drops the subtleness and just attacks God directly. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, Look, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Again, Eve, God lied to you. If you eat the fruit of that tree, you won't die. You'll become like him, like God. God doesn't want the competition. He's trying to keep something from you that is good. First he tells her, listen though, very important. First he tells her, you can't trust God's word. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. His way isn't the path to true fulfillment. Then he comes with the you know one-two punch. The second punch is he tells her, you won't surely die. Listen to what he said. This is being preached to every person in the world, but in America, that believes in God. First of all, they're being told by Satan, you can't trust God's word. How many of you have seen the attacks against God's word in the last 10 years or so? It's really escalated. It's even coming from inside the church. I expect unbelievers to attack God's word, skeptics, atheists, and so on. But you have Christians. I just had a gal call me who used to come to our church but felt led to go to another church to help the women there, because they're in a women's ministry, was struggling. And they've gotten into some of the contemplative things, you know, empty your mind of all thought and just, uh, you know, repeat a mantra or a spiritual phrase until you enter into the silence and you can connect with God. And they're buying into this over there. And she called me to say, what about this? Here's some of the authors that they're, uh, they're reading. One of them is supposed to be a Christian scholar, a professor. 
And he's saying all kinds of bizarre things that are heretical. This is a guy who claims to be a Christian. We are seeing the attacks not just from the outside anymore, but from inside against God's word. And the devil is trying to tell people, look, you can't trust God's word. First of all, he doesn't even have your best interests at heart. And secondly, if you defy God's word to do what you think is right, there's no consequences. You won't surely die. There's going to be no, no judgment awaiting you. This is a message, as I said, that's being preached by Satan, who's the god of this world, who is the prince of the power of the air, the air waves, for sure. It's a message we're hearing on TV. The music industry is pumping it in, especially into young people's minds. You see it coming out of Hollywood in the movies. Even through the advertising agencies, we're hearing this message being preached. A few years ago, Ford Motor Company launched their uh, new ad program with the tagline, no boundaries, no boundaries. Around the same time, Outback Steakhouse launched their new ad campaign with the tagline, no rules. Another company admonished us to live outside the lines. This is reflecting the mindset of the culture, a mindset the devil has been pounding into us for a long time, that we don't have to obey the rules, we don't have to live in the boundaries, we can live outside the lines, and what's being said in a subtle way is we're talking about God's rules, God's boundaries, and God's lines, of course. You don't have to live in subjection to anyone, not even a being known as God. You can do whatever you want. In other words, the big lie that Satan wants people to buy into is that they can live without any consequences, any way they want, uh, without God's rules, his laws. And there won't be a day of reckoning coming. No consequences, no judgments. And that resonates with people, doesn't it? It resonates with people because the prevailing attitude of our culture is nobody knows what's going to make me happy more than me. And my happiness is really what life's all about. Therefore, I'm not going to let anyone tell me what to do, not even God. I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to do what I want because at the end of the day, I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. And if these experiences or relationships or actions make me happy, then I'm going to do them. And you know what? I don't care what God says. It's rebellion, of course. Of course, to live that way, a person has to, first of all, get rid of God. Because really, if you're going to live in, in rebellion against God, you don't want him standing over your shoulder bringing all that guilt on you. So no God, no guilt. That's why the atheist neo-atheism is on the rise. Again, especially with young people, because if I say there's no God, if I do away with God, then there's no you know, guilt for me living the way I want to live. Others, of course, will never be atheists, so they have to find a way to twist the word of God to make it uh, line up with what they want to do. And again, we've just talked about that. We have a lot of people, a lot of churches, who are basically taking clear passages and saying, well, no, God really didn't mean what he said here. Here's what he actually meant. And it's twisting. Of course, it was Jude or Peter that said there are those who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. If you torture the Bible enough, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. But you'll stand before the God of the Bible one day, and he won't let you get away with that. If you have twisted the Bible to make it sound like God approves of homosexuality or living with your boyfriend or girlfriend out of wedlock or doing any one of a number of things that people are doing today and thinking it's okay, you'll stand before him someday and give an account. And he will hold you accountable. Now, back in Genesis 3, verse 6, so Satan gives Eve his, uh, his lie. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So Eve, with the serpent's help, listen to me, became the first person on earth to doubt and then deny the validity and authority of God's word, opting, listen, instead to do whatever she thought was right. Adam followed her, and they are our parents. Everybody born after them has born, been born with this, this attitude, this, this idea that we can do whatever makes us happy. Uh, look at our nation. Our nation is in the condition that it's in because we as a nation have adopted this mentality that we are the masters of our lives. We can do whatever seems right in our own eyes. We're God. We answer to nobody but ourselves. To our own selves, we must be true. And so in doing that, Eve became a judge over God's word instead of, listen, allowing the word of God to be her judge and final authority over the matters of her life. And again, this is where spiritual warfare began on the earth. In the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and notice it started when mankind opened the door to it through rebellion against what God had said. Now listen to me. When man fell... When man disobeyed God, I'm convinced that Adam and Eve didn't really grasp fully the implications of what they were doing by rebelling against God. They knew it was wrong. And God had communicated to them that in the day that you eat of this tree, you're going to surely die. So they knew there were consequences attached to their actions. I don't believe, though, they understood the full theological ramifications of everything that was going to happen to them and to their descendants by disobeying God and obeying the devil. They didn't realize. Because God gave them the world, gave them the earth. It was theirs to tend and watch over. It was basically their property. But when Satan took the form of a serpent and tempted Eve, and then Adam eventually followed, and both of them disobeyed God, they entered into a legal transaction with each other, with th themselves and the devil, a transaction that Jesus Christ didn't challenge. At that moment, they gave ownership of the world over to the devil. He became the God of this world. And not realizing it, when they disobeyed God and obeyed the devil, they also became the slaves of the devil. So at that moment, Satan became the world's new owner and man's new master. Now, Jesus Christ didn't dispute Satan's legal claim to ownership of the world. Because you remember in the Gospels, at one point, Satan took Jesus to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time, and said, all these belong to me, I'll give them to, give them to whomever I will, I'll give them to you, if you will bow down and worship me. What did Jesus say? You liar! You big fat liar, Satan! You don't own the world! No, he didn't dispute that. He said, it's also written, you shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship and serve. But he didn't dispute Satan's claim to be the owner of the world. Now, Satan usurped the world. It was a legal transaction, but it was never to be, supposed to be his. Jesus coming down, he was going to die on the cross and take the world, purchase it back from the devil. That's an Easter story, so we'll save that for then. But, <laughs> but again, as long as you understand that when man fell, Satan took over. He became the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air the commander-in-chief of an evil army, which is using the earth as its base of operations from which to overthrow God, his people, and his kingdom. Now, drop down to Genesis 3, verse 14, as we bring this to a close. Now, God knows what has happened. He's come down, and he's pronouncing the curse now. 
And verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. So before the curse, the serpent didn't look like it does today, didn't move around like it does today. Who knows? It might have had you know, legs and arms. It might have flown. We don't know. But now it's cursed and has to slither around on its belly, eating the dust of the earth all the days of its life. Verse 15, very important verse, guys. Don't miss this. I will put enmity between you, talking to the devil, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, or in other words, crush is the idea, and you shall bruise his heel. The theologians call verse 15 the Proto-Evangelium, which literally means the first gospel. Or the first time the gospel is intimated at, right here in Genesis 3, verse 15. The offspring that the Lord talks about, the offspring of the serpent, the devil, of course, would be the people of the devil, those that follow him, whether they follow him consciously or they're just, they just refuse to follow Jesus. If you're not for me, he said, you're what? Against me. So it's a lot of people who are following the devil that are atheists or who would never say I'm a Satan worshiper. But because they don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ, by default, they follow the devil. They are the seed of the devil. Jesus talked about the sons uh, and daughters of the wicked one and so on. Okay, John talks about that in 1 John 3, verses 10 to 12. I'll let you read that in your own. But the seed of the woman is interesting. When you read about the seed of the woman, this uh, seed that would be born of Mary, it's a reference to Jesus Christ. Look, the woman's seed, first of all, that's biologically incorrect. The woman doesn't have seed. The seed belongs to the man. The woman has the egg. Okay, By talking about the seed of the woman, which, by the way, God said would crush the devil's head, giving to him a mortal wound, absolute defeat of the devil, but first Satan would bruise Messiah's heel. It's a reference to the suffering and death that Jesus would endure on the cross of Calvary, but which would not ultimately result in his defeat. Three days later, we know after Jesus was put into the tomb, he stepped out of that tomb alive and victorious. He had conquered death, conquered Satan, conquered sin. So we talk about the seed of the woman. The reason that theologians call this the beginning of the gospel, because it's a reference to the virgin birth. Again, the woman doesn't have seed, she has the egg. So by God saying to the seed of the woman, he was talking about a virgin-born redeemer who would come. And Satan has taken authority over the world, but he's usurped that authority. There would come one who has the rightful, is the rightful heir, who would crush the serpent's head and take from him the world. And what, what did Jesus say in one of the parables? The pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a man walking through a field finds a pearl of great price. And for the joy thereof, he goes out and sells all that he has to buy the field, right? Why? So you can have the pearl, the treasure within it. Do you know that pearls were a Gentile gem? The Jews didn't place much value in pearls. The Gentiles did. The field, in parables, that's representative of the world. Jesus is saying, there was a treasure hidden in this world. My bride, the church. And I came down to purchase the entire world. Do you think God needs another planet? 
It wasn't this rock spinning in the cosmos that he wanted. There was a treasure on this earth that had to be redeemed before it could become his bride. I mean, wow. But he would come one day. Right here was the beginning of that promise. He would come one day, and he would crush the serpent's head and take back from him all that God intended for humanity. We'll have more, about, more to say about the virgin birth next week as we continue the story of Christmas series. The title of today's message is, The Story Begins with a Promise. There are many of you probably who, when you first heard me say that the Christmas story actually began in Genesis 3, you probably were taken back at first. Genesis 3? What do you mean? Okay, what, is, what are you talking about? Why do you say that? I believe that because that's where the first sin happened. That's where mankind originally fell. And that's where the story of redemption officially begins. The story of Christmas is really the story of redemption. The story of redemption begins with a promise. A promise from God that someday he would send a redeemer who would save us from our sin and give to us eternal life. Now look, I know that some of you are probably thinking, you know, you told me this is going to be a Christmas message. You've talked about the devil more than anything else. Yes, I have. Isn't the story of Christmas good news? You're not going to appreciate the good news until you first heard the bad news. The bad news started 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. If we don't see, guys, listen, if we don't understand the story of Christmas against the backdrop of the fall of mankind, and the fact that we were doomed to spend eternity apart from God in hell because we had sinned, there was no way we could ever change that. We couldn't, uh, once we fell from grace, once we fell from perfection, no way we could ever regain that. We were doomed to spend eternity in hell apart from God. Unless you understand the hopelessness of our predicament, you will never ever appreciate the absolute glory of the announcement by the angel to the shepherds that night Jesus Christ was born when they said to, to the shepherds, Behold, we bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You're not going to appreciate the message of Christmas if you don't see it against the backdrop of man's depravity and sin and hopelessness. Look, and I'm done. But the church for the last 30 years has been fed a steady diet of self-esteem, teaching, and man-centered theology. So much so that many Christians actually have come to believe that they deserve heaven because they're pretty good people. I mean, I'm not, as, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. We have come to believe, and I say we, I mean the church in general, that we are entitled to God's blessings. We're entitled to eternal life. We don't see God as a gift that he is giving to hopeless, helpless sinners. We see eternal life as kind of a reward for me being such a good person. It's no wonder we don't appreciate what God has done for us, what God has given to us. It starts right here with the story of Christmas and eternal life. We need to understand that God does not owe us anything. He could have walked away and went on the other side of the universe and started all over again with a new Adam and Eve and said to us, you made your bed. This is what you wanted. Now you can go on forever apart from me. He didn't do that. And listen, as Jesus said to the Pharisees about a woman who had just gotten saved and came into the house of a Pharisee 
as they were having lunch, and she knelt down, began to wipe Jesus' feet with her tears, dry them with her hair, anoint him with fragrant oil. She had just gotten saved, Matthew 11. And then Luke 7, right after that, Luke 7. And the Pharisees were incensed. They said in their hearts, if he only knew what kind of a woman this was, he would not let her touch him because she's a great sinner. And he said to the Pharisee, Simon, it was his house. He said, Simon, I got something I want to ask you. Okay, Rabbi, go ahead. Or a story I want to tell you. There was a man that owed, and I forgot the exact amounts, but there was a man who um, owed someone five denarii, and another who owed him 500 denarii. Neither could pay, and so in the course of time, he forgave both of them their debt. Who do you think will love him more? And they said, well, I suppose the one he forgave more. He said, that's right. He said, see this woman? When I came into your house, you gave me no water to wash my feet. You gave me no kiss. She has con continued to kiss my feet and wash them with her hair. He said basically to Simon, Simon, you think you're such a good person because you're a Pharisee. You're a churchgoer. You think because you keep commandments and bring sacrifices that you're such a good person, you deserve God's favor. This woman knows she's a sinner. She knows that she has nothing good to offer God, and she has received eternal life or forgiveness of sins, and she has become so grateful because she knew she didn't deserve any of it. And then he dropped the bombshell. He said, though her sins are many, they're forgiven because she loved much. Whoever is forgiven little loves little. Whoever is forgiven much loves much. And what Jesus is saying is, the proportion to which you will love God and worship him will be directly proportionate to how much you think he has forgiven you for. If you think that you're a good person, you're not going to appreciate God very much. You're not going to really appreciate his gift of eternal life. But if you know you're a total sinner that deserves nothing from God and he has offered you a gift of eternal life, you are going to be a great worshiper. And you're going to be one who thanks him constantly for what he's done. Do you realize that after all these years of man-centered theology, a lot of churches won't even sing John Newton's song Amazing Grace anymore? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Well, we can't have, we can't say that. It offends people. It damages their self-esteem. Yeah, and also their relationship with God. Because they think that God owes them instead of how much they owe him. So, yeah, we didn't talk about the Christmas story like you might have thought today. <laughs> but we had to start at the beginning. It starts with man's fall and God's promise. And we'll build on that over the next three times. So may God give us grace to really grasp fully all that he is teaching us through the Christmas story. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Lord, we are sinners. You didn't come to save good people, as Paul said. You said, came to save sinners of whom I am chief, he said. Lord, help us to see ourselves honestly, that we might fall at your feet in humble gratitude for all that you've done for us and the gift of eternal life, which we didn't deserve, but you gave to us freely when we put our faith in Jesus.
But Lord, we want to be worshipers. We don't want to feel that you owe us anything, that we're deserving of your blessings. Lord, give us grace to see ourselves honestly, that we might acknowledge that we don't deserve the least of your blessings. But you're such a gracious and good God. You give to us freely. And your arms are open to anyone, no matter how bad their life has been, to invite them to become one of your children if they will come and give their hearts to Jesus. So Lord, we thank you. Bless these, bless this series as we seek to understand the Christmas story in a deeper way. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.